right, so let's get recording here. All right, everyone, well, welcome to Not Another Whiskey Podcast. We're doing uh, another 30 minutes with here with a bit of a legend this week. So we're very fortunate in, to, to be joined by Mr. Ian Miller. Ian, welcome to the show, man. Uh, good to be here, Mitch. Good to see you. Buddy? <laughs> and obviously, uh, Ian is here, and as usual, I'm joined by Mr. Daz Haldane. How are you doing, Daz? Good, mate. Good, mate. Good to see you, chaps. What's happening? Yeah, looking forward to this one. Should be a good chat, Ian. So yeah. for those who, who are listening that may have never met Ian, um, first thing I have to say is that's very unlucky because you, you need to, to make that an experience that you have in your life. But to, uh, to give you an idea on how much of a legend this gentleman is, uh, so Ian began his illustrious career in the Scotch whiskey industry in 1971. Ian, I was, I, I was three years away from being born at that point. Stop it. <laughs> but he, he started work at his local distillery at Blair Athol, uh, where he was elevated to production manager in 1981. And in 1988, he moved to the Aberfeldy distillery as a trainee manager before being promoted to distillery manager at Bladnock. Uh, then Ian moved around uh, the massive company that was DCL at the time, now known as Diageo, managing a number of malt distilleries, including Mortlock, Linkwood, Glenelgan, Darwinny and Blair Athol. I think you said at one point 13 distilleries, right, Ian, that you managed for Diageo, is that right? When we're doing our trainee, we were moved around because managers, <clears throat> it's a bit, bit inconvenient, but they used to take holidays and we would do holiday cover. So we did holiday cover at Glenkinchy, Altmore, um, what, what else did we do? Oh, ben Rinnis and Del Yun. Ben Rinnis and Del Yun was, we had a couple of um, issues at Del Yun because we had a, a few deaths up there. So I had to go up and cover for about four or five weeks at both Ben Rinnis and Del Yun. Uh, just to make sure the management team were, were okay. So see, we, we moved around. See, see in those times, because later on, and Mitch is going to come on to this, you end up at William Grant's, and that, that's where you know I, I'm aware of you from and, and where I've met you and guys that you've worked with and stuff over the years. In those days at DCL, did you have a favourite distillery that you enjoyed working at across those sort of 13? Well, it, might have been, it might have been Mortler. Aye. I was five years, 91 to 96. Yeah. And I, I think I probably grew to like whiskey more in my tenure at Mortlach. We used to do a quality control every Friday night about half past four. And there was four distilleries at that time, all, all from uh, DCL. So you had Glenn Dullin did about the road. So Ricky Robertson would come up, David Robertson's father, uh, Charlie Smith, who you all know, and Steve McGingle, who's retired about two years ago. So they would all come in along with um, the engineering manager, and at half past four, they would all join me. And sometimes it was half an hour, sometimes it was three hours, and sometimes we needed another bottle because we weren't very sure about the first one. But it was quality control and we took it seriously. And that was so Motlick is where I really came to enjoy whiskey a lot. And also found out a lot about William Grant before I even thought about joining them. So yeah, it was that was, that was probably my my favorite distillery. That sounds amazing. I mean, so yeah, right after Mortlock, that's when you went to uh, William Grant and Sons and became the Glenfiddich and Balvenie distillery managers. Uh, and then following on from that, 2005, I think it was, you became the global ambassador for Glenfiddich, which was, I suppose, part of that new school of distillery managers moving into that ambassadorial role within whiskey, right? Yeah. 
we were we were trying to break into the, the brand ambassador world. Clearly, uh, Johnny Walker had already broken the back of that uh, out in the States. I think they'd tried about three different cities where they put brand ambassadors in. You could see the growth in those three cities. So the evidence was clear that brand ambassadors made a difference. And you can actually see that the number of brands that now have brand ambassadors or even distillery ambassadors at the distillery. So um, they're clearly worth paying for because they do a good job. And Charlie, Charlie Gordon loved brand ambassadors. So he could actually track who was working where and the impact that that brand ambassador was having on that singular market, be it a city or a state in the US or Canada or whatever. But he tracked it. Yeah. He was, he, as you know, he was a very detailed man. I went to see him in, in his department in, in Paris. And he said, Ian, we've got 65 uh, brand ambassadors, but I've only got 51 reports here. Where are the rest? Like, <laughs> it was like, a, like I was, like I was preventing him from getting them. But you know, brand ambassadors, like sometimes they weren't always up to date, but that was the kind of guy he was. So he, he thought the brand ambassadors were terrific. And I'm sure you'll recall the time we had with him up at the, the Cabrich, where he, he met all the brand ambassadors and he was just happy to sit in a circle and, and let them ask questions. He just loved it because that, that was, he was in his element, uh, talking to brand ambassadors about what was happening in their markets around the world. Funny when you yes, mentioned so that, there's two things that make me chuckle just as you're chatting there is um, Mitch and I were, were in that kind of seesaw moment in about 2006, 2007, where you had some of these distillery managers who were on the the last few years of, of their working careers, I suppose, that had left the distilleries and moved into ambassadorial roles. And you'll know these guys. It's Gordon Bell. It was Charlie oh, Smith, I think, was one of them. And we were doing the Johnny Walker Championships. And I met some of these guys who were distillery managers or blenders. Ian, Ian Williams is another guy uh, who, yep. who from that, that era. Um, and then you had this new breed of brand ambassadors kind of coming through around that time as well. And it was really the formative years of brand ambassador life. But it's funny as you say that McAllen, I remember, had about 50 odd ambassadors and you never really knew how many you had on, you know, some would go missing and you'd never see them again and <laughs> they'd just drop off the radar, you know. <laughs> it's so funny. I have a lot. In, in 1991, when I was at when I was at Mortlach, um, because Mortlach was a past Johnny Walker distillery within the, the Diageo group, um, I was invited to attend a brand ambassador training academy, which was two weeks intense, um, going out with some a lot of distillery managers. And we ended up um, at the at Johnny Walker in Kilmarnock. So we visited the graveyard, we visited the farm when he was born, we visited the graveyard where his grave lies, we visited the Johnny Walker building and, and all about the heritage of Johnny Walker and the whole story. And the idea was that we would all go out into the States and Asia and so on and actually talk uh, about, about Johnny Walker, the brand. So you can just see how early Johnny Walker had already begun. But remember, this was all on the back of Evan Katanach, who was for me probably the first ever brand ambassador of clout. Him and Jim McEwen, who was at um, Bowmore at that time, these two guys probably set the scene for everybody else and everybody would aspire to what they have achieved for their, their brands around the world over time. But Evan, for me, um, I mean, he was manager at Cardew, but they had to install uh, an assistant manager in there because Evan was never at the facility. He actually called me one morning from Australia. It was five o'clock in the morning in Australia, but he needed me to cover an event at Cardew for him when I was at Mortlach. And he was, so this is him turning up behind the scenes from his bedroom 
in, in Australia. So it, it, it kind of gave me an, an early insight into the life of a brand ambassador and what, what you were expected to do, albeit you were in a market somewhere else. There was some shit back at home that you had to deal with at the distillery. <laughs> we, we, all know, we all know that stuff. Yeah. So I mean, I mean it's, it's an unbelievable career that you've had uh, Ian, within whiskey, you know, and, and from that, you've, you're now a master keeper of the quake. You've, you're inducted into uh, Whiskey Magazine's Hall of Fame in 2017. You know, you, you essentially took Glenfiddich, really, when I look at Glenfiddich, you took it from strength to strength, playing a pivotal role in, in really growing that brand. And, and I'd say the whole ambassadorship as well, because that's something you do amazingly well. And Daz and I were chatting about this before, you know, we started recording this. Um, but anyway, that's enough blowing smoke up your ass. I see you got a, uh, a whiskey in your hand. What are you drinking there? Um, I'm drinking a, a naked Balvenie. A naked Balvenie. And so it's cast strength, this. And this is, I'm not sure what strength this one comes out at because I've never tasted it from the bottle yet. But it's, it's, um, it's called Edge of Burnhead Wood. It's, um, it's from the Heather Trials we did back in 2000, 2001. 2000, I think it was because this is about 2019. So uh, I like it because it's something that I was at involved with right back at the start. Uh, and you'd never think that you could actually last that long in a company. Well, certainly I didn't because it was always pretty shit at what I did. But I was able to pull the wool over the eyes at William Grant so they kept me long enough so I could actually taste the shit at 19 years old and still be with the company. <laughs> Which is a pretty good feat. But it's, it's an interesting story as to what you did. Run everyone through the, the idea that you, you created, essentially, for this, this liquid. Well, in 2000, um, there was a, it was a really great time to be part of William Grant and Sons because it went into innovation in a big way. Uh, uh, most of it was actually about cast finishes because you, you, marketing teams, as you know, are probably been a company four, five, six years, and then they run away. So they're all trying to hang their hat on something that they can put on their CV as I did that. Difficult to do with a 19-year-old. So <clears throat> hats off to them. They, they bought into the fact that some of this stuff would actually outlast them. Um, so the Heather Trials was something, uh, they wanted to do something with peat. So we looked at peat. And if you look at the breakdown of any peat, regardless of whether it's Isle or mainland Scotland, it's got Heather in it. So we wanted to, to actually amplify what, what Heather could do to, to a whiskey, or certainly take a good look at it. And so we, we cropped Heather uh, through Dave Stewart, who is uh, my estates team manager. So he went up to the hill and uh, we actually cropped it all when it was in bloom. We took all the roots off because we didn't want the wood to actually have an impact on, on, on the flavour. I thought it would be all flavours coming from that. So that dried, uh, and because it was that dry, the first time we did it, it actually went up at about 30, 30 seconds flat. Well, you cannot malt, you cannot malt barley in 30 seconds. So we had to get the hose on it. That's, that's where you got people like Robbie Gorblick, who was at, at Barberry Maltings, absolutely brilliant. He says, it's day bothering, we'll just hose it doing it. I'll take a while longer and burn then. So that's what we did. We actually got a spray on it. It was uh, it was, it was fantastic to be a part of it. And it was a very quick, it took us something like four to five days for the whole experiment. During which a guy called Mike Weber, who was our head chemist, came all the way up from Govan because his, his nose was borrowing him. And we actually stood out in the, in the square just below the kiln and you could actually smell the heather burning and you could see the blue smoke coming off the kiln. Uh, I don't think we'll ever see the likes again, but given what's happening to Pete and 
and the potential uh, end of peat harvesting, we might see a move over to the use of heather in a more, uh, in, in a wider scale, I think. That's because heather you can replace, peat you can't. So I, I just wonder about the, the future of peat uh, with regard to whiskey going forward. It's not going to bother you and me because we've got stacks of whiskey that we'll drink until we die. So we'll have enough in our cupboards. So don't worry about that, Rich. Or you guys. I'm sure you've got a cupboard full as well. Yeah. Bit, I always remember. I always remember um, Eric Smith up at up at Highland Park telling me about the heather. They they used to always chuck a, a good chunk of heather on top of the the kiln just to get that little bit of floral smoke and things. And that was something that um, was never written down anywhere. It was. It was almost just it sort was. of passed on, you know? It was. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you where to find it. Right. Uh, I've got a book. Aye. And it's, it's early enough that it actually captures it. We're doing it in two places. We're doing it at Highland Park, but we're also doing it at Bureau of Orm. Both of right? those stories had heather houses uh -huh. where, where they uh, amassed the heather for burning on top of the, and burning on top of the piece. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so so we 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 did contact Highland Park. They weren't able to share information with us to make us feel comfortable about what we were doing. But that's okay. Um, you know, we still love them. Still like the still like the whiskey. Um, but yeah, Heather has its place. And um, we had to um, have uh, serious discussions with the Scots Whiskey Association to get that through. But thankfully, it's it's all passed, and we're able to enjoy the liquid, which is the main thing. Well, Ian, I'm having a wee dram of uh, something that is kind of, well, when we first started, actually, when I first started, I should say, with Glenfiddich, this was the the um, first expression, I suppose, that we chatted about uh, because it was literally about to come out in, in a couple of months. So I've got a little bit of Glenfiddich Snow Phoenix here, well, which is quite nice. Got a couple, you, of, couple of bottles left from back in the day. See, that whiskey um, allowed people to, to, there was a curiosity around that whiskey, so people bought it, tried it, and what it did was it opened up doors that had been previously closed by whiskey drinkers who, who were fond of Glenfiddich, but had, I, I guess, fallen out of love with us during the, the 80s and 90s. And this gave them a reason for coming back and re-examining the 12, the 15, and the 18, because having tasted the Snow Phoenix, they loved it. And they thought, well, if they've got that quality, I need to re-examine all, all the other expressions. So it opened up the door again and you can actually see there's, there's, there's more growth from 2010 onwards uh, and I would pitch that at the success of um, Project well, not Project 20, Project 20 came after but I, I see Project 20 and uh, the Snow Phoenix as two, two drums that really propelled Glenfiddich forward at two different dates in time. Very good. Absolutely. So Ian, you're retired now or you're supposed to be retired now. How's that treating you? What have you been up to since, uh, since you've been... Uh, Stopping jumping on well, planes. It was a good time to retire because, I mean, you know, we're working on um, selling casks to people that could buy a small country. And uh, it, it, that kind of ran out of steam because these people can't visit us, we can't visit them. So we're having a lot of meetings over about 18 months uh, on, on laptops and really not my scene. So, I mean, I'm old enough to retire, so I decided I would just retire. Um, I'm still working on little bits and pieces like a whiskey museum up in Dufferin and bits and pieces like that, but just enough um, to not, not lose it um, because having spent a lifetime in whiskey, it's difficult to, to leave it, as you know. Especially, I especially think the front of house stuff, 
you know, you, you're, um, your natural personality obviously lets you do that and it, and it allows you to do it in a way that's very comfortable, very natural. And one of the things I was aware of about yourself, Ian, um, when I first came into the kind of malt side of things, I came in from cocktails and then moved into whiskey after that, um, was looking at like the ambassador program that you guys put together for grants and the the distillery guys um, up in Dufftown, you know, you'd get these swathes of brand ambassadors coming in from all sorts of places, all these big personalities and things. And and yourself and Dennis were the two names I always heard. And I hadn't met you guys, I don't think, at that point. Like, oh, we're here with Ian, we're here with Dennis, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And I think one of the things that really struck me actually about some of those programs that you ran and the team ran at Grants, but a lot of it I know was led by you, is the category approach. You know, it wasn't all about Glenfiddich. It was about come to Scotland, fall in love with malt whiskey, share the great stories that we all have. Um, and you guys would always visit different distilleries, not just Glenfiddich. You'd go to Highland Park. I remember I was at Highland Park when, when you guys did that trip. I wasn't there, but I was working on the brand at the time. And, and you, you know, you always did that kind of thing. And I think that's something that um, is really important, I suppose. And, and I guess, you must miss that a wee bit, no? You must miss that connection with these great personalities that would come in. And what's undeniably a passion for whiskey, you know, Glenfiddich's part of that, but whiskey just generally. Uh, I guess the Speyside Whiskey Festival is is a, is a reconnector. Um, we've been to a couple of whiskey shows down in Edinburgh with the, the likes of the Worshipful Distillers Dinner. And then there was, um, what was the last one? And also went to the auction, the big whiskey auction. So you, you you reconnect with people there, um, and and obviously I keep on uh, keep good connections with Jonathan Jonathan Driver, um, who who took the whole of January off because he was pretty damn exhausted. To come he in. deserved it. <laughs> but you know he headed up the Worshipful Distillers that whole year uh, during lockdown, and at the same time he put together a, a, a pretty good auction. Along with his, you know, he's got a pretty heavy job along with that. So you do three things at the same. He's well supported because, you know, Vicky Rimmel, you know, she, I would say she does probably most of the work. Uh, Jonathan, he's very much. <laughs> yes, Vicky, that's what we're doing next. You're okay. But it's, it's, it was a lovely little team to, to work with. And um, uh, I hope to do more with them in the future. It really depends on when things start to open up again. We're all kind of waiting for that because things will start to move again. Getting access to distilleries again, getting people coming up from all over Europe, from all over the world, into back into Speyside. And Speyside is very vibrant right now in terms of the, the, the new hotels or some hotels existing are, are refurbishing. The refurbishing to, to quite high quality. So we've now got about four, four hotels, four or five hotels up in Speyside that are now at what I would call London standard. And you've got a lot of um, good bed breakfasts and you've got a couple of houses up there that you can rent out as well. And, you know, some, uh, some, what's what's one of them called? Bocker Croc? Something like that? <laughs> 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 I don't doubt I have a <laughs> but you know, it's, it's on the up and up. Spaceside is on the up and up. And uh, I've been with the Spaceside Whiskey Festival since, I think we, we talked about it last week, about 1993-94 is when Duffdown 2000 actually started the Duffdown Festival because the Spaceside Whiskey Festival that was at that time disappeared at the same time as most of the tourism um, authorities. Um, but thankfully in 2006, um, Spaceside... Whiskey Festival started up again 
just at the time where I stopped being a story manager and moved into Brown and Barcel work. So as I disappeared, they came in. So it took a lot of work off, off my hands and allowed me just to get out there and do my job as a, as a, as a global guy. Um, but I, I have to say that the, the 10, 11 years that we were traveling, loved it. Loved yeah. it. I mean, you must have I, a few stories, man. Uh, <laughs> that's not about Las Vegas. <laughs> I mentioned Vegas. I think that was, uh, I think probably, well, it still is my, I remember you saying that we're not, you're not going to do a better tasting unless you fly to the moon. And it was one of the experiences that we had in Las Vegas, which was flying into the Grand Canyon. Uh, you can't top it. That was amazing. Five helicopters into the Grand Canyon, drinking Glenfiddich 30, 40 and 50 year old. Not a bad day in the office. I, I would challenge anyone to top that. And then we hung out with Calvin Harris at night. Oh yeah, who's that guy? <laughs> Ian's, uh, Ian's first right. introduction okay, to uh, <laughs> yeah, his first I introduction to vodka Red Bulls. Bulls. Remember that? Oh god, I do remember that. How could you forget? I was awake for two days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was hell of a night. Yeah, Las Vegas is uh, someplace. Did you get what out to you? Taiwan and, and Japan and things like that, Ian? Often. Yes, my, my, actually my very first trip in the end of 2006 was fly out to Japan, uh, down to Okinawa, because DFS were reconnecting with malt whiskey. So DFS in 2006, globally, did not sell any malt whiskey. It was all blend. Um, historically, they did, um, because some of the people who sold it historically were still there when I, back, when I went back in 2006. So... We went to stores in Okinawa, which is the islands to the south of, of Japan. I mean, hot, stunning. And then we flew out to Guam and Saipan, which are two small islands between Australia and uh, um, Japan. And again, DFS stores, then back to Hong Kong. And then we did um, uh, Taiwan, Korea, and then flew home. It was a three-week stint. And uh, boy, was I happy to get back home. I tell you, I'm, I'm never going to do sushi again. I can do sushi if it's deep fried, but I just kind of do it the way they do it. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've had a few, a few dodgy moments, especially in Japan, actually. Usually it's sort of, I don't know why, but going to fish markets at three and four in the morning just seems like the right thing to do. <laughs> it's definitely right. not. Right. <laughs> I don't mind sushi, but when it, when it starts walking off the table, it's too fresh for me. Uh, but Ian, let me, let me ask you a question. I think you're the perfect man to answer this one. How would you say the role of a distillery manager has changed and a brand, a whiskey brand ambassador has changed? Because, I mean, you've done both of those roles now in, in a big way. Uh, so. I, I think it's... Um, so distilleries are almost running themselves now because we've, we've built in so much automation. I mean, I think the first one that I got involved with automation-wise was Bladnock back in the 80s when we put in a lot of... Um, Stuff that you can't really see in the surface, but it's there anyway. So for measuring alcohol strengths and so on. Uh, Glenelver, we, we kind of half automated in the late 80s. And then we, we took all of that and we automated uh, Glenfiddich and Balvenie in 2003, 2004. We pushed into that because um, brewer's yeast was disappearing. It's all bagged yeast. Uh, so we moved into, we were pushed into going to liquid yeast. And liquid yeast is something that you can easily manage in tanks and so on, in measuring. And so that, that pushes into um, automating both Glenfiddich and Balvenie. That took about four years to do both of them. Um, but uh, I would say now that you, you need less, you need less 
knowledge about how the place is, is actually operating as a sewer manager. You're managing a business unit, and it's about man managing people, finance, and what's happening, what we need to spend money on year one, two, three, four, and five. Uh, brand ambassadors, um, in, in some brands, you'll remember yourself when, when the Glenlivet chaps over in the States were all given scripts, and I think they were given suits as well, um, and they lost quite a few people. So sometimes a brand gets it wrong. Um, and I think as long as you, you take them back to the story, you need to glue them to the story so they get some base knowledge. It's good for them to get to know the people at the distillery. Is it, will it be any different in the future to what it's been in the past? You know, I still think they'll, they'll need to know about um, how to make whiskey. They'll still need to have an attachment to the story. They'll still need to come back to the story to, to, to gain that knowledge that people will expect them to have because the respect you get from the audience is based upon your ability to answer questions um, accurately, but also in an interesting way without actually taking the piss out of them and without actually being derogatory as well. So, so it takes a bit of, um, what is it? You need to just be gentle with them. You know, we, we've had people in the past, you know, you, you know someone in the past at Balvenie out, in, out in, in, in Las Vegas. So sometimes you can lose your tempo, you can lose your cool. You just need to try and contain it sometimes because we, we do have a difficult audience, especially when they've been drinking a little whiskey. Yeah, Which is kind that, of hard for us Scots, right? I mean, to, to, to stay friendly and, and you to, to calm. Him. <laughs> Mitch is quite an angry man. And there's more you, Mitch, than anyone else. <laughs> what, what, you always what sell you an angry man on this show. I'm just if anyone's listening, I'm not an angry man. It's just Daz thinks I am. Maybe it's just because you make me angry, Daz. That's, That's what it probably. Is. Yeah. <laughs> so I think Mitch and I both know someone who's who's angrier in front of an audience. Anyway, at least as soon as mended. Yeah, yeah, it's true though. Eh? I mean, and and it goes both ways. It's it's challenging sometimes because I think that the the glamour and the rock and roll style life that 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 you see, especially now on social media, you know, people just see the veneer, what what they're not seeing, and I'm not complaining or moaning or anything like that about you know that life as a brand ambassador, but you're usually last to bed, and you're usually first up on your feet presenting in the morning with a glass in your hand, you know, sharing the virtues of the brands and things. And I remember it was actually on one of the trips. It was Jerry Tosh actually who sat me down before I went to Asia for the first time, and he said, "Daz, look." This is what you need to know, right? Just keep going. It's a nine till five a.m. Don't forget that. <laughs> and that was like, okay, understood. <laughs> well, I mean, I think I've told every brand ambassador that the thing is that the most difficult thing is to get the, the life-work balance. Mm -hmm. um, you'll never get it right, but unless you consciously give it some thought, uh, you'll you'll get it less right than you should. Mm -hmm. uh, and I have to get it. I have to say, I, I got it wrong a couple of times. You know, going away for three weeks, coming back for three days, and then going away for two weeks. So um, her downstairs will tell you it's, it's been, yeah, it's sometimes it's quite tough, but th that's what you're expected to do. You're in a hurry to make a difference for your brand. Uh, and you're in a, you know, so sometimes you forget that you've got a house to, you've got a house and a family back home. Uh, and that's, um, that's not something that we, that's something that, probably lets us down more often than not. And, and I think especially personalities, certainly myself, speaking for myself, and it's probably similar for you guys, you're, you're always keen to say yes, you're always keen to help. It's just the way you're wired up, do you know what I mean? And, and I remember yeah. um, it was a Sunday night and uh, the good ladies uh, come down and um, she's 
asked me where I was working tomorrow, you know, Sunday night, where, where are you going to be working on Monday? And she's just walking past. So she said, I better be careful here. And uh, <laughs> I was, I looked and I said, oh, have I not, not told you? And she's like, no. I was like, um, tomorrow I'm in Tokyo. And, you know, I was living in Edinburgh at the time and I hadn't, I just, I hadn't realized, I hadn't told her that I was going to Japan for 10 days. Um, and that was a Sunday night, packing my bag, going on the Monday morning. And I was just like, nightmare. You know, and it's like, it's, you, don't, and you now, can't get away with that too many times. And now everyone listening understands why I get angry at you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is it. This is it. But I think, you know, but you're right, it is. It's getting, how do you do that without I mean, mixing up the, the balance? Ian, it's, it's great advice for ambassadors, um, what you just said. I've always kind of harped on about that with new ambassadors that have started. But what advice would you give to someone who's just wanting to get into the whiskey world, whether that be production or ambassadorship? Or I think the first thing is a foothold. Most, um, most people actually go in through guiding um, because if you can last the season guiding, then you, you know that whiskey's for you. So, we, you know, Gemma. Who, who heads up Balvenie? She's given us a guide. Uh, again, Stolstrup, who was our first uh, global guy on both Glenfiddich and Balvenie, you know, he was a guide for five years. Jamie Milne was a guide. So there are lots of instances. Um, Jan from from Belgium, you know, he was a guide. So I, I can I can probably mention oh, Susan Colbill. So there's probably about half a dozen, at least that I know in my time, who've gone from guiding into um, being a, a, an ambassador for, for a whiskey company. And they've done a great job. Debbie, who's at uh, Glen Parkless, ex-guide Glen Ferry. You know, so that they're, they're scattered everywhere and they proliferate the whole of the whiskey industry. So they don't necessarily grow within our company. They'll grow within our company and then move out and branch out into other companies. So there's about two or three with Glen Ivett right now. It's great. Um, so they cut their teeth at the facility. They gain an interest to the point where they want to actually move on to the next level and they start looking for opportunities. But if you're actually in the whiskey trade, you see those opportunities coming along a lot a lot quicker. Yeah, I'd um, like to see more of that, a lot more of that. You know, I, I agree completely. And, and I remember um, with Jodie, who was at McAllen, went over to Dubai. She's still out there as an ambassador living in the Middle East. And the, I, I don't think there was enough in the organisations I'd worked in in the past who'd come from the distilleries. And I think there's two things about the guys that, that do work at the distilleries. Is one, they, they know the brands brilliantly because, you know, they, they, they've spent so much time around it. And I think there's a massive dose of credibility for someone who's worked up at the distillery in the area, they've lived there and things like that as well. You know, that perhaps someone like myself who grew up in Dunfermline, who came through the bartending route, you know, you don't really have that that lineage, that that legacy piece that, that maybe, you know, living in the area gives you and things. But a, but a lot do come through through working in bars as well. So yeah. Ail, who's out in Los Angeles, she's now working on Balvenie. Um, I remember um, we, were in, in the, we were in the blending room at Glenfiddich and uh, uh, it was his final interview. And it's, he was all nervous. It's like, you just choose something that you feel comfortable with. So he talked about his first day fishing uh, on the day outside Aberdeen because he came from Bankery and uh, you know he, he came alive his, his eyes were alive and he said well you know if you can talk about whiskey like that you know, you'll, you'll do fine so he ended up cutting his teeth out in Singapore for two years did such a good job that they they parachuted him in uh, over to the States and so he's he's ensconced now working on on Bulvenia there along with David Laird and, um, and also Dave Paradise now so I mean what a team they've got 
Ian, to wrap this up for the listeners, you've got some incredible stories from back in your production day. Give us, give us one of them, one of your favourite ones. Favourite ones in production, probably um, my mate Paddy, who's long, long since passed. His name was uh, Robert Bruce. Um, and uh, I always remember him following the, the grass mower because he loved that grass mower so much that when, it, when, it, when he was cutting a wee bit of grass beside the dam, the mower went in and Paddy decided he would just hang on to it. So he ended up the dam with the grass mower. Um, but attached to that story is the fact that when we got a new grass mower, it looked exactly like the previous one. And when it arrived, Paddy was keen to get onto the lawn to try it out. So he started up and off he went. And it's about 150 yards long. It's opposite the petrol station at the, at the distillery. It's now a car park. And he set off. And he had to do a handbrake turn at the end because he couldn't slow it down. He thought he knew what the brake was, but all he did was he actually turned up the exhaust, the, the, the petrol a bit more, got a bit more speed. So he ended up, up half walking, half sprinting along the, the... And after about four or five, he started to accrue a lot of people who were being curious about what Paddy was doing and why he was running up and down the grass, where they shouting at the moor. Because he couldn't get it stopped long enough to actually work out what the hell was going wrong. Eventually, the bloody moor ran out of petrol. And that's what Paddy said, I've got all you now, you bugger. So that was Paddy, Paddy and his, his grass moor, my, my favourite story. But I could write a book about Paddy and his stories at the facility. He was an amazing man. He, and that, like that was at Blair Athol, right? How's the Blair Athol story? I had a sensational Blair Athol the other day. I must say, at the Whiskey Society, I was massively impressed. It was very, very good. Chocolatey, fruity. I think it was about 11 years old or something. I know, yeah. right? Not from my time, then. No, no, sadly. No, I don't have the, I don't have the budget for that, Ian. <laughs> I think I've got some. It's quite a... It's, quite, it's, it's not a... Well, it never was my favourite dram. Because when I was with Bells, and um, we used to cut the sills for five minutes, four shots when you know it should be at least half an hour. So you always wondered about what volatiles were actually cascading through after five minutes, and you could taste that. But it didn't matter because Bell's was a blend. And Bell's used to be, before it was sold, it used to be on the top 10 grocery items south of the border through any, any supermarket that was selling well, both groceries and, and whiskey. On the top, in, within the top 10 grocery items, and then DCL, Mesh with bells and took the eye off the ball, and uh, and what happened was it, it just died to death. And Grouse took over that position that was vacated by Bells because DCL didn't realise what they had. Ian, listen, we're going to have to wrap this up, but absolutely amazing to chat to you as always. We probably should have done this over an hour. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks again, Ian. Uh, tune in again no. for another episode of Not Another Whiskey Podcast. Cheers, guys. Cheers, Cheers guys. Cheers. All the best, Ian. Right,